Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis, back to Genesis chapter 29. It's uh, providential, fortuitous that we read two short readings because uh, our sermon text this morning, I won't read the whole thing, but uh, Genesis 29 as well as chapter number 30 is one uh, big account uh, in the life of Jacob. We're going to begin reading in chapter 29 at verse 1, and I'll I'll skip down at some point and I'll uh, let you know but have your Bible open. Uh, The verses are also printed out, most of them at least, on that sermon notes page, especially for you kids who want to follow along. I know there's a lot of verses this morning. Uh, It's a big story, but uh, follow along as you're able to there as well. Uh, Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey, the journey that he was commanded to go on by uh, his mother, and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone in the well's mouth was large, and when all the, flood, uh, the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where did you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then did you deceive me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, 
and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing and then skipping down to chapter 30 at verse 25, after uh, there's an account here of not just the sons from Leah, but also Rachel, Zilpah, and Bilhah. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country, just as he had asked before, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. The Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, you should not give me anything, for you will do this. Uh, if you will do this for me, I will pasture again your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good. Let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were stripped, uh, striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in, the ch- in charge of his sons. And he said a distance of three days journey between himself, Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flocks. And then down at the bottom of verse 43, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. And all of God's people say to these words, Amen. Well, everybody wants to uh, be close to those they love. We all know that. Whether it's during times of great blessing, birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas, so forth whether it's during times of great sorrow, uh, such as death. We all want to be near those who are dearest to us. Uh, But having them near to us means more than just physical presence. You want to know they want to be there, right? You want to know that the person that you love and the family and the friends and those that are closest to you, that they want to be there in that time. 
that they care and that you can feel and experience their love. We we all want to be close to those who love us. What about the one that we love with heart, soul, mind, and strength? What about the one of whom we cry out to in the song of Solomon? You are beautiful, my beloved. You are beautiful, our Lord Jesus. Do you desire to be in his presence? Do you desire his presence among you in times of great blessing, but also in times of sorrow, uh, sorrow and tragedy? Uh, do you long to know that he's with you through thick and thin? Do you want that presence of Jesus? Do you want that presence of Jesus, loved ones? All right, there we go. All right, we're awake. We turn to Genesis this morning, and I mention all this because here in chapters 29 and 30, what we see here is the Lord's promise to Jacob coming true. The Lord's promise to Jacob coming true. Well, what promise is that, we ask? What promise has he made? Well, back in chapter 28, which we looked at last uh, Sunday morning, last Lord's Day morning, at verse number 15, uh, there was this great promise. Behold, I am with you. Behold, I am with you. And he goes on to say, I will not leave you. Behold, I am with you. I will not leave you. He told Jacob that when he had to leave and flee from his own family, from his brother especially, Esau, because Esau was seeking to kill him. Why? Because he tricked and he connived and he cheated. We saw that already. He stole his birthright, he stole the blessing, and so forth. And so now he's on the run. He's fleeing hundreds of miles away from his family to his extended family in the past, to his uh, grandfather Abraham's family and their relations there. He's fleeing for his life, and God says to him on the run, as he's laying around in a field with his head upon a rock, I am with you. I will not leave you. Our story this morning in 29 and 30 shows us this. It shows us this in the actual real experience of Jacob. He hears the promise, he hears the word, and then he sees God's fulfillment. Let me just explain for a moment, what what is this presence? What does it mean when God says throughout his word to not just the forefathers, but to you and to me? I am with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. When just two or three are are, are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. What does that mean? The Lord's presence, it's the Lord. The Lord's presence is the Lord. Sometimes, in fact, to to show that in English, when we translate uh, from the Old Testament especially, we talk about the presence with a capital P because it's God. It's not that there's God out there and there's the presence of God over here. His presence is himself. It's him. He is present. That's why he says, I am with you. Right? I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. This is why we say so personally of this presence of the Lord, when we speak about his providence, his his care, his concern, 
his overarching power, uh, not just in the whole world, but also in our lives and in our own Heidelberg Catechism. What do you understand about the providence of God? And we, we say that his providence is his, his, is his almighty, everywhere present power. Providence is God's almighty, everywhere present power, whereby, as it were, by his hand. It's not just some power that, that God just sends. No, it's his own power, whereby, by his own hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God's presence is God's. When we speak of the presence of God, we're speaking of God. Now, he's everywhere present at all times and in all places. That's why he's God's. But when we speak, or when the Bible speaks of his presence, it's, it's speaking of a particular manifestation at times, or a, a, a deeper sense of it, a closer communion with God, an assurance that he's near. We know he's near, but an assurance that he's near. That's why we in Reformed churches, we call these sacraments, baptism and communion, because these are particular expressions to assure us of the presence of Jesus Christ with us. We know it, we hear it, and we can see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, and so forth. Right? So the presence of God is God himself, his own personal, powerful, everywhere present power with us, his children. And we see that here in action, in our story. We see his providence in action. But what's interesting is, once again, in, the, in these stories, oftentimes the Lord, the Lord is not even there, quote-unquote. We read here of a story uh, of Jacob, of uh, his uncle Laban, his daughters, their servants, all these sons that are born, these servants uh, and these shepherd, the shepherds and shepherdesses and so forth. There's not a lot of action here in terms of what God is doing. Where is God? Well, he's right here. We call this the, the invisible hand sometimes. We see in the stories of Scripture the invisible hand of God leading and guiding and governing and so forth. Just like the proverb says, the, the heart of the king is in the hand of God, and God is the one who turns it like a river, right? You see the king making a good or bad decision in the Bible, but behind it all, somehow mysteriously, we have the hand, the invisible hand of God's personal presence, his power, his providence. Since hardly, uh, since hardly a word is spoken of here of the Lord in all these verses, yet we, 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 we see the hand of God invisibly manifesting himself. I am with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. I want you to see that here, this, this particular aspect of his presence in the life of Jacob here in, in just three quick ways. Uh, three quick ways. Notice in verses 1 through 21 of chapter 29 there, uh, you see the presence of the Lord, you see the Lord himself in Jacob's pilgrimage. So his presence in Pilgrimage. Notice how the story begins there, verse, uh, verse 1. Jacob went on his journey. Jacob went on his journey. And, but yet we know that right beside him, right, the, the story says Jacob goes on the journey, but who's with him? How do we know that? Verse 1 doesn't say that God is there. How do we know that? Chapter 28, verse 15. I am what? I'm with you. I will never what? 
forsake you, leave you. So it's Jacob going on a journey, but who's right at his side? The Lord is right there. We know that he's right beside him. Uh, don't forget in chapter 28, he had that dream and he saw that, that, that staircase, that, that so-called ladder to heaven, right? That ziggurat structure. And it said that the Lord was right there next to him, right there beside him. He's still beside him. He's still beside him. Note again the promise above in chapter 28, uh, that, that the promise that I mentioned there. The Lord, there the Lord revealed to Jacob's presence, I'm with you, I will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have done promised you it's so amazing to understand that what the lord is promising to do is to become a pilgrim right next to jacob this is the god who made the heavens and the earth out of nothing who spoke and all things came to be Uh, this is the god that 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 jacob in this dream as he's laying there with his head upon a rock as a pillow he was in fear and in awe of god but yet This great God, this great powerful God, this almighty God, this God that causes fear and dread at times, even in his own saints, desires to stoop down, climbs down that ladder we saw last Sunday, and promises to become a pilgrim alongside of Jacob there, lying his head down upon a pillow, right there, uh, wandering with him to this land that he's never been to, right there with him at that well, right there with him in his struggles. To struggle alongside of Jacob. To go through all the highs and all the lows with Jacob. One poet said it like this. Give me courage when the world is rough. Keep me loving though the world is tough. Leap and sing in all I do. Keep me traveling along with you. See, here Jacob knows. He's been assured. And in all the ups and downs, the, the roughness, the toughness of life, he travels as a pilgrim alongside of the Lord. He's right there with him. Remember that, that this... Uh, uh, we, we, we heard of this before. Uh, the Lord's promise to Jacob's father Isaac. When there was a great famine in the land, we read it back in chapter 26, the Lord telling Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell instead, the Lord said, in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. And here is Genesis 26, verse 3. And I will be with you. And as Isaac wandered... Back in chapter 26, the Lord again reiterated that very same promise. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Why? Genesis 26, 24. I am with you. I am with you. Keep me traveling along with you, that poet said. We have a God that's willing to stand besides, you see. We have a God who's willing to stand besides. The sinful, like Jacob, like you and me, 
and to enter the mess that is our lives. This life, this family, this, this, is, the, this is the holy family, and their life is a mess, isn't it? Their life's a mess. Multiple wives, concubines, multiple children, promises go to this kid, that kid, older, younger, and so forth. It's all messed up. Sin is everywhere. But yet, we have a God willing to stand next to, beside the sinful, to enter the mess that is your and my life. Amen? This God is a God of love and faithfulness, we sang. God of great mercy. He entered into the life of Jacob, and we know, of course, before that, Isaac, before that, Abraham, the whole world. But here he is in this family with Jacob. He's cheated his way to the blessing. His brother now wants to kill him. He's on his way and so forth. The Lord is right there. God is with us. God is with us in the messiness of life, in our own struggles. So the Lord is with him in his pilgrimage. And notice how, just how matter of fact, our story describes the providential guidance. Again, verse 1. Jacob went on his journey, but we notice the providential guidance, the invisible hand of God, when it speaks of Jacob's just happening to come upon a certain well. He just happened to come to that well where there were certain shepherds with their sheep. He just happened to come to those particular sheep, uh, shepherds with those sheep at that particular well. At the right time when they would be there. And those shepherds just happened to know Laban of Haran. Whose daughter Rachel just happened to be bringing sheep alongside of her. To give them water at that well. Why? Because she had no sons. Why didn't she have any sons? She's not married, right? This is a big theological point. She's not married, right? She's not married. Aha, right? Why is Jacob there? He's going to get a wife, isn't he? So it just happens in the, the, in the, in the randomness, we might say, as we say, you know, in the happenstance of life, in the chance encounter. He just happens to end up in that little spot. How did he get there? God. The invisible hand has led him. You know, loved ones, every, in every single circumstance in our life, the Lord is orchestrating these things for the good of our salvation. He works everything, he tells us in his word, he works everything out for our good. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right? That's big, that's big theological speak for Every detail of life, we as a child of God can look upon and say, Lord, Lord, you have been with me. You've never left me. You've never forsaken me. Even the, harsh, the harshest hardships of life, you have been with me. Every single circumstance. Just happening to come to this little water well, and there are these particular sheep, and these shepherds, and this girl just happens to walk by, and oh, by the way, her dad is this particular guy. Every single little minuscule detail of life is orchestrated by the master, the Lord himself. And don't lose sight of this fact. 
This particular providential circumstance of Jacob's life was for your salvation. It's for your salvation. Why did Jacob need to get married? He has to carry on the line of God's people. And as that line goes down through the corridor of human history, what's its end result? If Jacob doesn't get to that well at the right time in the right place and right they don't and they know the right guy and so forth, there's no Jesus Christ. Humanly speaking. There's no salvation for you, right? This stuff's important stuff. Without this story, without this providence, there is no salvation for you and me. And that's what makes the gospel so amazing to us. And that's what we can say to every single sinner who's here in our lives, that God, that God saves sinners. Look at the testimony of human history. He has orchestrated to bring you to salvation. Come to him. Come to him. He's made the world. He orchestrates the world. Even in all of its broken and fallenness, God is in charge. Humble yourself before him. Give your life to him. And he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to redeem. To redeem sinful people like you, like Jacob and others. And so here's the Lord. Present then. Present in Jacob's life. To bring us, not just him, but to bring us the gospel. His presence in this pilgrimage story. No, notice secondly, and briefly, notice the Lord's presence. So that's all very sort of blessing type type stuff, but there's also hardship. Notice verses 22 to 30 there in chapter 29. The Lord's presence in Jacob's persecution. We can't forget, we can't forget as we read these stories, and again, we, we like to read them through those sort of, as we say, those rose-colored glasses, right? These, we see the blessings, right? We see the good stuff. We see the heroes of faith. We see the fathers, the mothers. We see faith. We see, we see salvation. But we can't only see that. We have to see the Lord's presence here, even in the hardship. Persecution. Don't forget that life is a pilgrimage. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. And that God's providence, orchestrating all things for good, does not mean that for Christians, there's no more curse. There's no more experience of the fallen world. That, there's, that, that somehow we cease to sin or experience the effects of sin. Jacob experiences a harsh providence here. A harsh providence. God's providence is not only to orchestrate all things for good, and we think of good as just, you know, blessing and health, wealth, prosperity, don't we? But here's a harsh providence. Laban persecutes him. Remember that when Abraham sent Isaac to Nahor of Haran, Laban's father, he sent him with ten camels laden with choice gifts. And we saw that story, how it all worked out. But, but here's Jacob. He's got nothing. He's got nothing. 
Just some salt, right? Just a rock for a pillow. I mean, it's not even a my pillow, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a nothing, right? It's a rock. It's a rock. And we can see Laban scheming here. Jacob lays eyes upon Rachel and, and he loves her. Right? And he's willing to work for seven years to marry her. And there's that wonderful, uh, that little line that should be a Hallmark card, right? He, he did that. It seemed like nothing. It seemed like a day to him. It, it seemed like it just passed as nothing because of the great love that he had for her. And he does that for seven years. And then he, he, he comes to the point where, he, where he's going to receive his wife. And, and there they are in, the, in that marriage tent. And it's the wrong sister, right? His father-in-law has tricked him. And now he's going to work seven more years. And he does that because he loves Rachel. In the meantime, uh, he has all these sons through Leah, and then he has some sons through Rachel, and then all of a sudden he has sons through, uh, through, through the two servants uh, of his now wives, who have all these kids, and then he goes to Laban and says, it's time for me to go. And he even gives up a little test and, and a, little, a little way to say, well, give me all the spotted and speckled, all the ones that aren't so, aren't, aren't so good looking, all the ones that seem to be for, uh, for us, not the choicest of the flock, and there's Laban tricking him again, taking all those ones out, giving them to his, his own sons, and he sends them away for three days. But where's the Lord? Where's God? It's right there. Laban schemes in the background. He plots to take advantage of his vulnerable, this vulnerable son-in-law, Jacob. Jacob's reaping what he's, what he's sown, isn't he? I mean, we can be honest about that. He's reaping what he has sown, and doubly so. He had nothing because of how he fled from his home, tricking his brother. What does mom's help? And now he, this, this deceiver, this heel grabber, is deceived. The trickster was tricked. Doubly so by his father-in-law. So again, just to remind you and, and to remind me, we read a story like this, and let's, let's, not, let's not forget that God's presence with us, his children, does not equal health, wealth, prosperity. Didn't Jesus say something like that once? I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is just me speaking, but I, I think Jesus said something like this. Uh, in this world you will have tribulation. Didn't Jesus say something like that? In this world, to his, to his disciples, his apostles, right? These are the holy guys. In this world, you will have tribulation. What kind of languages will have tribulation? I mean, is this, you know, if you don't have enough faith, you'll have tribulation. If you don't give enough, you'll have tribulation. If you don't do enough good works, you'll have tribulation. No, you will. Apostles who do the works of God, who raise the dead, who give sight to the blind. You will have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus once said. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. One hymn writer said it like this, When the waves are crashing and my faith is drowning, though I may forget you, hold me, Lord. When the cliffs are steepest and my hope is weakest, Though I fall, uh, though, though I fail to trust you, hold me, Lord. 
when the dark clouds have gathered and my love is battered. Though I may desert you, hold me, Lord. Faith may be eternal. Hope will last forever. Greater still is love that holds me, Lord. Here is Jacob in a time of great, great hardship, dark clouds, sufferings. The waves are crashing against him, so to speak. And here is the Lord with him. Here is God with him. All a part of his master plan to bring about the people of Israel, to bring about his promises that the sons of Jacob will become like the sand of, uh, like the dust of the earth, the seed of the earth, uh, the sand of the seashore, the stars of the heavens, just as God has promised. It's through many tribulations. It's through many tribulations. Not despite them, not around them, not over them, uh, it's through them. Through many tribulations, the apostle tells us, we must enter the kingdom of God. And Jacob has to go through those many tribulations. But yet, knowing the Lord is going through them with him. The Lord is right there. And you see his presence in Jacob's prosperity also. Just to note that, you see the the end of chapter 29. uh, His house is prospered. You see uh, the the end of chapter 30. His herd is prospered. Uh, We see the Lord's providential presence then. Uh, prospering Jacob even by means of through these harsh persecutions nothing comes by chance all things come by the fatherly hand of God it's so telling for us to remember that Judah came from Jacob's unloved wife Leah you see that in the story I didn't read that part uh, but uh, if you keep reading the, the, the whole of the story Judah comes from Leah the unloved wife What a picture of the lowliness of our Savior Jesus Christ. The one who's called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. A man not highly esteemed. Especially especially, uh, in our our time, in our our particular culture, in our particular nation. uh, It seems like uh, there's always a political political season. There's no no off-season anymore for for politics, it seems like. Uh, Political candidates, right? The future of our nation. We think about these things. And uh, these things take on great religious tones, even, right? Um, whatever, whatever side of the aisle we so-called uh, uh, belong to, we, we, think of these, uh, we think of elections and, and candidates and, in very heightened religious terms in our time. But we've got to be, remember, uh, uh, be reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ, that he didn't come to establish one particular nation as his throne. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is, is, is one in which power is wielded not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. By means of the word of the sacraments. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, the Bible tells us. But they are spiritual. And those spiritual weapons do pull down strongholds, the apostle tells us. So here's Jacob's house being prospered. And even in that prosperity, his unloved wife, Leah, uh, the one that he was tricked into uh, having children with and taking as a wife, this is the line of our Savior Jesus Christ. God works all things out for the good of the salvation of his children. And again, the Lord has promised to provide for Jacob, and he did so back in chapter 28 uh, at verse 20. The Lord promised to provide for him uh, there at Bethel, uh, when Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me, and I mentioned that that language of if is a language of since, 
since God will be with me and I, and, uh, and I will keep in this way that I go and uh, will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, God's promised to, to bless him, to provide for him, to take care of him. And we see that in the end of chapter 30, that, that takes on living color. All the flocks, all the provision, all the blessing that he receives. That he receives. And so he asks for the spotted sheep. Laban tries to hide them to keep Jacob even longer. Yet the Lord prospered his way. In other words, nothing can stand in the way of God's plan, God's purpose. We, we can try and the world can try, but nothing can stand in the way of God. Amen? Nothing can stand in the way of God. And so here is the story of the presence of the Lord, God himself, God himself. But just to think of this as we conclude. Before this story, in the stories before, when we've read about the presence of God, what are some of the ways that God shows that presence so far in Genesis? When, when, when he appeared to Abraham, how, or Abram, how did, how did he experience that presence? How did he see it? Fire and smoke, right? He had this vision of, of this flaming torch, this smoking fire, this sort of fiery smoking oven passing through, right? Those slain animals. And so we could see God's presence. And so fire and smoke become symbols of the presence of God all throughout the Bible. Fire and smoke. Right? That's why there's, there's the tongues upon the heads of the apostles in that upper room, and it's filled with the presence of God because that's the way of showing that God is present. So you have that. Uh, in this dream that Jacob's just had, he also has uh, this vision of the Lord himself, right, at the, at the top of that, uh, that structure, but then down with him. He sees angels of God ascending and descending. So there's, there's been lots of tangible and visual uh, mental, spiritual, all kinds of images. All kinds of ways that God has made himself known to be present right then and right there. I mean, to, to Abraham, right? At the, at, at the tent, actual men show up, and one of them is the Lord. It's two of them are angels. Somehow, right? Somehow we saw that many, many moons ago. So how is God's presence with us? Without smoke and fire and visual signs of his presence. I mean, do we need to put the, where's the, where's the, do we need to get the gold glitter like some churches do and blow it out there, right? And we feel the presence, right? How do we know that God is present with us? The word and the, the word of the sacraments. Now that, that sounds weird. I know that sounds weird, right? For, for those of us uh, who became believers in Pentecostal and in charismatic churches, and, uh, and here we are now in Reformed Church, right? the Frozen Chosen Church, uh, you know, and we're like, yeah, this bread and wine, you know, so every Sunday, and, you know, the water, it's kind of cool, all that stuff, but really, really, the, God's presence is really here? I mean, I didn't really feel much, you know, that Sunday, you know, the songs weren't the greatest. The sermon was kind of, you know, I don't know. It wasn't really very presence-ish. Is God present? Now, he promises us, of course, the, this, I mentioned that his presence comes into reality. This story is just one of many stories to 
point us to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So God became actually present on this earth in human form. Right? That's the great fulfillment of, of this story. But then as Jesus says to us, and he, and, and, and he tells his disciples and apostles that he's going away and he's not going to leave them or, as orphans, he's going to send another help or another comfort of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit. How do we know the, the Spirit is present with us? We know he's present with us. When we read and proclaim the gospel, the story of the word of God. He's inspired, he's breathed out the, the words of the apostles and prophets. We have those very words. These are the Holy Spirit's words. Not, not, not mine, not yours, not ours. When we read the Spirit's words, the Spirit is present. When we preach the gospel, when we faithfully preach the word of God, we know that God is present because that's his word. And because God knows just how weak we are, just how Jacob-ish you and I are, right? Just how much we sin, we struggle, we doubt, we fall into ruts spiritually. He knows this. God knows this. God knows this. he, He knew when he sent Jesus Christ to the world. He knew everything about those sinners in that world, that moment. And he knew going forward into human history, he knew your sins. Let's, he knew it. Don't pretend. He knew it. And so knowing that, God says, you know, we hear, we hear this message of Jesus, but many of us struggle to hear that. And, you know, it might not hit us the right, at the right time, the right moment, in the right way, when we need it exactly. And so the sacraments, believe it or not, the sacraments are the signs, the tangible realities, the expressions, the assurances to you and to me that everything that we've just heard is real. And true, as surely as we take with our hands the bread and wine, as surely as we eat and drink, so surely Christ promises to be with us in all of his promises, in all of his grace, in all of his glory, in all that we need. It's right here. It's right here. It is just bread and wine, right? This is not a transformation. This is not a Roman Catholic understanding of, the, of, of communion. The water is still water, but yet God uses those normal things in a holy way to draw you closer to him, to express to you his presence. And so as we read about a story of God's presence in hidden ways, right? again, we, don't, we, we read about Jacob going on a journey. We don't, we don't read much about God doing a whole lot here. But God is in the whole thing. In the same way, it's normal bread, it's normal wine. You're going to walk up, you're going to take it, you're going to eat it. But it's God who's doing the work. It's the Lord who's doing the assuring. It's God who's doing uh, the blessing. It's the Lord who's present with us. Amen? Amen. So you, frozen chosen, are a spirit-filled church. You are a Pentecostal church. You are a real Bible church church you are a real christian church because you hear the gospel you read the word we have the sacraments god is with us god is with us let's pray we thank you lord we bless you we praise you as always for your amazing grace and your love to us in jesus christ and we pray now as we hear of this ancient story of your presence way back then in these mundane struggling details of life the same way that this morning you would Uh, You would uh, speak to us and assure us and help us to know you, to know your presence in this place today, to leave uh, transformed and changed, Lord, to, uh, to live lives that reflect your presence 
uh, to live lives that people would see and experience and hear from our lips, Lord, your presence in us and through us. And so, Lord, draw to yourself this week. Draw to yourself, Lord, someone who needs to know you uh, in a saving way and who needs to be brought back into reconciliation and fellowship with you, our great and wonderful God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, amen. Well, let's uh, turn together uh, in our bulletin, our order of service. You'll see there uh, a final song this morning.